Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. All right. Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Very, very short episode. I want to address one question. Do unbelievers know God? Are atheists lying when they say that God is not real or that they believe that God is not real? What do the following verses mean in Romans 1? Specifically, 19 through 21. I'm going to read these verses. I want you to listen to the claims that are being made here. The claims from Scripture, from God's Word. And then ask yourself, if this is true, what are the implications of this? Okay. I am reading from... Actually, I will pull it up on the C, in the CSB. So here's what it says in the CSB. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Okay, strong words, a rather controversial passage for many reasons. I think you can probably begin to see why this would be controversial, but this is the big question today. How do unbelievers know God? How can God say that they know him when... They say that they don't. And are they lying? Or are they doing something else? Now, we're not going to talk about verse 18, which says that all men suppress the truth in unrighteousness today. We're going to talk about that specific verse at a later time. But let's just start by looking at the passage and seeing exactly what the claim is that's being made. I almost don't even don't even like to call it a claim because that implies that it's something that could be disproven. And God's word is by necessity true. If you're a Christian here, then you have to believe that God's word is true. So first, what it's saying is that they know what can be known about God. Now, this doesn't expressly say it, but it implies that there might be some things that cannot be known about God. But whatever can be known about God is known by all men, by men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, which is all of us according to Romans 1. So what what do they know? They know what can be known about God. If I were to walk into a Frank Lloyd Wright home, house, I used him in an, another episode as, a, as an example recently. And then strangely enough, Alisa and I just had some friends over recently who live in an old Frank Lloyd Wright house that's been restored. We're actually going to go over there tonight, which I'm pretty excited about. But if I were to go into a Frank Lloyd Wright house, there would be certain things that I could learn about him. I could learn about his preference for a certain kind of leaded glass window. I could learn about his preference uh, and his appreciation of Midwest um, 
prairie. Uh, in fact, the Frank Lloyd Wright style of architecture is sometimes called the prairie school of architecture. I could learn about his um, propensity to design buildings with horizontal lines. I could learn a number of things about him. Something I couldn't learn about him, I couldn't learn what his married life was like, if he was married at all. I couldn't learn how, what kind of dad he was. I, I couldn't learn um, what his favorite color was or what he liked to eat or where his favorite hot dog place was, um, assuming that they had hot dogs back then. But I could learn certain things about Frank Lloyd Wright from his architectural style. What Paul is saying here, the apostle, is he's saying there are certain things that can be known about God as shown in his creation, as, as revealed by the things that have been made. So there are certain things that can be known about God, and those things are known by all people, including the unbelievers. Now, what are those things that can be known? They are his invisible attributes. Now, if you want to get a laugh out of somebody, tell them God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Um, I had someone laugh at me on YouTube one time recently when I posted that in a comment. Uh, I said, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Well, how can his invisible attributes be clearly seen or clearly perceived? It seems like an oxymoron, but in reality, it is a paradox. It's not, an, it's, it's not a contradiction. It is a paradox in that the... Um, the invisible attributes of God are not things that can be seen with the eyes in the way that a star can be seen with the eyes, but that star or the sunset or what have you can reveal something to me about God that would have otherwise been invisible. So they know God's invisible attributes. Uh, they know what can be known about God. And then those invisible attributes, according to God's word, are his eternal power and his divine nature. And then in verse 21, it actually says they know God. So they know what can be known about God. They know his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. And they actually know God in, in some sense. Now, let's unpack this. How is this true? Well, let's talk about um something called general revelation. Now, general revelation is the knowledge about God that God reveals. Revelation implies uh, the word reveal is there in revelation. Revelation that is available to all people apart from God's word, apart from scripture, is called general revelation, whereas his word, holy scripture, is called his special revelation. It's all from God. It all reveals who he is, but there are two different categories that theologians lump God's revelation into. So in his re general revelation, we have knowledge that is available to all people, all men at all times. Um, again, this isn't going to reveal salvific knowledge about God. It's not going to reveal how to be saved, how to have your sins forgiven, but it is going to reveal to you that immorality is a real thing because goodness is a real thing. It's going to reveal to you that ugliness is a real thing because beauty is a real thing. It's going to reveal that weakness is a real thing because strength is a real thing. So God's general revelation is going to be enough to tell uh, to tell human, humanity, human beings like us, that we are sinful, uh, ugly, and weak. Now that sounds pretty harsh. 
I realize that. But the biblical diagnosis of the human condition is not a positive one. Left to ourselves, the Bible says, our hearts are desperately sick and wicked. So, yeah, it sounds harsh, but man, if you've got cancer, the kindest thing that a doctor can do to you is to tell you you've got cancer. If you've got a sin problem, a corrupted heart, the kindest thing God can do is to reveal that corruption to you. Um, and then to offer you the cure. So the diagnosis comes first and then the cure. And the diagnosis, at least in some sense, can be known, can be picked up via creation, via that general revelation. Now, God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. These are, again, his eternal power and his divine nature. How have all people seen his eternal power? Well, first of all, they've seen his power in creation, in all of creation. Um, on my wall, right above my electric fireplace here in my office, not as good as a real fireplace, but I've got that downstairs, but it's something. Uh, but right above this beautiful mantle, I've got a painting. Um, it was made, I want to say, sometime in the 1800s, early 1900s. And the centerpiece of the painting is this beautiful mountain in the background. And then there's this flowing river or, or possibly an alpine lake that's in front of it. And um, the, the, the painting does a somewhat adequate, adequate job of capturing some of the beauty and the power of the mountain. In the same way, that mountain itself, if that is a real mountain, but um, mountains and other natural formations um, and other aspects of the physical creation reveal to us God's power. Man, drive through an open farmland or an open prairie when there is um, a green sky and a tornado is brewing. You will see God's power on display. Drive past the mountains. Um, look across Lake Michigan as the sun is setting over the city of Chicago, and you will see God's incredible power on display. All of creation, according to Psalm 19, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God, and we see his power in the creation. But it says it's this power is his eternal power. Well, creation itself testifies that it needs a timeless creator. Time could not have continued on forever into the past. Even atheists who believe in Big Bang cosmology will acknowledge this, that there has to be an absolute starting point to time. Well, the cause of time, of cosmic time, must itself be timeless. Now, that's not special pleading. That's just what necessarily must be the case. Um, so, God has revealed to us in creation his power and that his power is eternal. That is, it's timeless. He existed outside of and before cosmic time. So, in Genesis, when it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that tells us there was a beginning. Cosmology agrees with this. In John chapter 1, when it says, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate form, that tells us that there was an absolute beginning to the cosmos and to time itself. So, um, God, not being bound by cosmic time, stands outside of, or at least before cosmic time began. I know, before time. 
crazy concept to think about, but God by definition must be timeless. So, or or at least uh, not bound by cosmic time the way the way we are. Now, we see God's eternal power in creation. And by the way, don't we see that more and more as technology improves, as science improves? Uh, as I'm speaking right now, just a few days ago, we, NASA, landed a, a new rover on Mars to explore Mars. You want to talk about seeing God's eternal power? You can now see high-definition photos of a sunset on Mars. That is incredibly cool. Now, what about his divine nature? These are those those aspects of God's nature that he has revealed to us that we literally see in the invisible, immutable, unchanging universal laws that govern the universe. For example, his logic, his logicality, his logicalness is seen in the laws of logic that govern all of our thinking and our speech. His goodness is seen in the moral norms that govern human conduct. And even though different societies differ in how they interpret God's absolute moral law, the very fact that we are moral beings who create moral laws ourselves to govern our society points up the fact that we are made in God's image and that God has revealed his morality, his goodness to us. Uh, Similarly, laws and principles of mathematics, absolute truth, goodness, and beauty, and the very fact that we have unity in diversity in our creation. So we have things like categories, and then we have instantiations of those categories. Um, We have something called humanity, and then we have an individual man or an individual woman or an individual boy or girl shows that there is both unity and diversity in creation, and that those two aspects of creation are equally ultimate. Uh, Creation is not primarily one, and it's not primarily many. It's both. In the same way, God is both one and three. So we see God's divine nature, as the King James says, his Godhead, or as was expressed recently uh, in a sermon that I listened to, his Godhood in creation. His eternal power and his divine nature have been revealed in creation. So in a certain sense, although they don't know God salvifically, they know God in a sense that um, that they they are accountable to glorify God and to thank Him, and that is actually what man is culpable of: is not glorifying Him as God or thanking Him. And if you continue reading on in this passage in Romans chapter one, you'll see that because they did not glorify God or thank Him or, or show Him gratitude, there were some very negative aspects that happened to their thinking and their hearts. Uh, We'll talk more about that in another episode. But again, what we're talking about is how do unbelievers know God? So just to summarize them, unbelievers know God from creation, from their own observations of creation and their own interactions with creation such that they, they tacitly endorse God's existence every time they expect someone to be logical, every time they hold someone to a moral standard, every time they try to do mathematics or scientific inquiry, we are presupposing the goodness and the character and the faithfulness of God who holds the universe together such that these laws will continue on uh, in perpetuity in creation. So God has revealed himself to us. We all know God, at least his eternal power and his divine nature. Of course, that's not enough 
information. But the the same Bible that tells us that we all know God, certain aspects of God, also tells us that we deny God, that we have sinned against God. And that same Bible, in fact, later on in Romans, we are going to find out from that Bible, from, from the epistle to the Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you're sharing the gospel with someone, when you're doing apologetics or defending your faith, have this in the back of your mind, that the unbeliever to whom you're speaking, in some sense, knows God. The truth about God is inescapable to him or to her. And this should move us to have compassion and to be patient, not to rub it in their face, not to accuse them of lying, but to have patience and compassion. And um, to remember that if it were not for God revealing himself to us salvifically, we would be right there with them denying or suppressing the truth about God, the knowledge that we have about God, in order to sin with impunity. And that's really what's at the heart of that suppression. But um, this should move us to compassion. It should move us to have patience. And it should move us to move ourselves and to move the conversation to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as quickly as possible, because it's only, it's only in Christ. It's only when we have our thinking and our hearts renewed in Jesus Christ, that God's revelation and our minds come together and cohere in a coherent way such that we are now able to actually glorify God and thank him by observing and interacting with his creation. So I hope that's a little helpful for you. And I hope it gives you something to uh, keep in your back pocket when you're interacting with non-believers. You know, just remember, this person knows God, and there's there's aspects of God's creation that you can draw out and point to. You can appeal to logic. You can appeal to morality. You can appeal to mathematics. You can appeal to truth, to knowledge, to goodness, to beauty. These things are, are aspects of God and his nature that he's revealed to us, and uh, he's given those to us not just to appreciate, not just to glorify him with in our worship and our singing and our prayer, but also these can be powerful apologetic tools as we are interacting with non-believers and skeptics. So I hope that is uh, I hope that is helpful to you. And um, I can see that we've already begun to get some comments on this. Uh, I will tell you what, I will try to interact with some of these comments on um, YouTube. But uh, hopefully so far what I've said is helpful to you. Remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. That's about all I have for you right now. So until next time, I hope it made you think.